Now, number six, we'll be understanding the goals within your marriage. Now, the last time we saw the purpose of marriage, and we saw that as building a spiritual base from which the husband and the wife fulfill the commission that God has given them within the concept of marriage. And we talked about the importance of family. And I, I know that this is premarital, but the people that you are dealing with need to understand that getting married leads to children. And children are a family. So you can't just be limited in your scope. And this is what happens with most premarital. They just talk about the husband and wife being like Christ in the church, and do, they never get past that because there's no depth to it. It's just the, you know, the standard format of what churches do when kids get married. And, of course, uh, it's got to be much more than that. It has to be much more than that here, anyhow. And we talked about the importance of the family, how that, that's God's program of reproducing yourself uh, within the family. If you want to know, uh, uh, and, I, and, I, and I'm just going to use this as an example, <clears throat> take any pastor, uh, and I put myself on the line here, uh, you take any pastor, if you want to know the depth of that man's character or his spiritual relationship with God, all you got to do, no matter who it is, all you got to do is look at two things. You don't have to ask him a thing. You don't have to ask him a series of questions. All you have to do in any scenario, in any church, with any spiritual leader, is simply ask him, uh, or simply look at two things. And uh, it, uh, it, it, it pertains to his depth as far as where he's at. Number one, look at his kids. Look at his kid. Number two, look at his church. Because in both cases, his family and his church will represent exactly where he's at. When you listen to classical music, if you're any kind of classical expert, and I don't use the expert term in a, in a general way, you know that you can listen to different composers from different time periods. No one tell you uh, who the composer is but yet you know immediately who it is because of the style of his music. And it goes all the way back to Beethoven versus Bach versus Brahm versus Mendelssohn, Haydn. And as I've told you many, many times, music goes through a different progression through history that as the, as the Bible was used or not used, reverenced or not reverenced, everything in on the world was affected one way or the other. When the King James Bible was the premier Bible, you had guys like Bach, uh, Mendelssohn, uh, who, uh, uh, who really were saved men, who wrote things based on where the world was with God. When it shifted to a natural, uh, more fleshy thing, then you have guys like Beethoven and you have guys like, you know, uh, uh, Tchaikovsky and all those guys who you can listen to their music and know exactly who it is. Because you can't write something without having the spirit that is in you come into what you do. It's just that simple. And that's why somebody can listen to Beethoven and know it's Beethoven. They can listen to Bach and know it's Bach. Nobody has to even tell them. Because the man cannot do what he does. 
You can listen to a big band music from the 30s and the 40s, and you can tell Benny Goodman from Tommy Dorsey in a heartbeat because of their style, because of what they did, what they put into what they did. You cannot, you cannot do something without what is inside of you, which is producing it, get infused in what you do. And when it comes to churches, a church will be what the pastor is. I don't care. It doesn't matter, good, bad, or indifferent. Because he will produce himself in both his kids and his church, and they will only be as deep with God, his family, or his church as he is. Now, I use that example because it's the same thing with a husband and wife and their family. Their kids will say it all. Uh, The wife will say it all. When you look at a family and you want to know the depth of a husband and his relationship with God, just look look at the two things. Look at his kids and look at his church, his family. And just as my church is you, if you're married here, your church, man, is your family. And whatever you are will be in your church, just like whatever I am will be in my church here and then also my family. And when you, when you begin to have a family, you begin to realize that now there has to be some goals that have to be established. There has to be some goals that have to be established. And, um, and when you look at goals in a marriage, fundamentally you'll have, and I know somebody else could come up with more, but I'm just dealing with the basic concepts. You'll have fundamentally six areas in building goals in your marriage. And I know somebody said, well, I got eight and I got ten. Congratulations, that just more work for you. I keep it short. <laughs> But these are vital. And these are the things that a husband and wife need to guard. And when a man and a woman sits down and says, we want to get married, I'm telling you right now, they have no idea of what they're getting into. And it's our job not to get them to see it, but it's our job to do the best we can in laying out the truth of it. And, uh, and when a couple gets married, obviously they're going to have a family in time. They'll need to work on these all the time. They'll need to do the maintenance on these. When a marriage, as I said earlier, when a marriage begins to fail, it'll fail <clears throat> in one of these seven pillars. And uh, usually it's found within the goals that never get established. And I've never understood it. Well, I do. You go buy a car, and they tell you when you buy it that you get a bumper-to-bumper warranty on things that the manufacturer made. But the natural things that just happen to your car by driving it 15, 20, 30,000 miles, the natural wear and tear things, the warranty doesn't cover. Your responsibility is to do maintenance on your car. So you, what you do, every four or 5,000 miles, you change the oil. You have to have the transmission fluid checked. The windshield wipers will wear out, and you'll go down the road in the rain, and you'll see less with them on than you do with the rain pouring on your windshield. <laughs> you'll have to check your air pressure and your tires. You'll have to <clears throat> replace your worn tires. 
After a period of time of driving up and down, your battery will need to be replaced. Your brakes will go out. Have to get new brake shoes. All the maintenance that just will come with wear and tear of having and driving a car. And yet, I say that, when it comes to marriage, there will be wear and tear on your marriage a 10, 15, 20 years. <clears throat> just like you drive a car and the wear and tear on your car of putting miles on it, you put miles on a marriage, there's some things that are going to have to be maintenanced. And I've never understood why somebody would maintenance a car, but would never maintenance their marriage. I, 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 never, I never fully got that. <clears throat> they never do maintenance on it and then just let it fall apart. And then, what's even more amazing to me, after it happens, they sit there and scratch their head and ask what happened. And yet, if they never did anything to their car and they just drove it. I mean, you get 30,000 miles on your car without ever changing the oil, you know you're going to have some problems. And after a while, if you don't check on the tire, you're going to be, you're going to call you Sparky because you're going to be on the rims. <laughs> And the only way you can do that is for you and a wife and a husband to get some goals that both of them understand and they agree to, and they both work at maintenancing them. And sometimes, I'll be honest, they're just unspoken goals, many of them, especially when both really are into the Bible, when they know already what they need to do. It's not something that's got to be, but in those cases, that's not true. The maintenancing of a marriage through the goals is absolutely vital. Now, I want to walk you through these six goals here and talk to you about them. First of all, the first goal that you ought to have, or a couple ought to have, and this is vital, is the fact that you guard your attitude of heart. That needs to be a goal. And that needs to be your number one goal because attitude is everything. You know, uh, the Song of Solomon would be, uh, you know, the Bible says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. It's talking about you and me as Christians. The only book that will accomplish that fundamentally is the Song of Solomon. Because the Song of Solomon is the most intimate book in the Bible that, and I've said this many, many times, that shows you and me how God looks at us, when he, when he, how he sees us when he looks at us, and then turns right around and tells tells uh, you uh, and me how we're to look at God when we see him. And that works for a Christian, but it also works for a husband and wife. Most people don't know this, but in the Jewish culture, a Jewish young man was not allowed to read the book of Saga Sodom until he was 30 years old because of the intimacy it connected with it. And, and it showed the love relationship that needs to be there uh, not only between him and God, but when he ever found the wife. And the book of Song of Solomon is the greatest book that shows you how to guard and keep the goal of the attitude of heart. It forms the right attitude as you look and view and understand each other. God first, your spouse second. Now, it goes without saying that there's no perfect marriage and everybody's going to have struggles within a marriage. That's just, just like you've got to have new tires on your car and you've got to fix things. I mean, it's just the way it is. Every marriage does. And a marriage that betrays itself as being perfect 
without any problems is, you know, it's, 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 it's for show because every marriage will struggle in some things and, and as they go through life. But what will keep those struggles small and to a minimum will be the right attitude of heart toward each other. And that goes back to the Bible in a biblical sense. The attitude for God or in a husband or wife relationship will not just happen. You need to understand that. It doesn't just come into effect the day you say, I do. And this is why so many people, two or three years later, have changed it to, I don't. It has to be built biblically, and then it has to be maintenanced biblically. It's just that simple. And, you know, this is, this is not rocket science. This is not hard stuff. But one thing that I have found through my years in life, that the simple things of the Bible are usually the hardest things in the Bible to do. See, it's real easy for me to believe in the second coming of Christ. It's real easy for me to believe in the millennium. Those are major doctrine, but those are easy to believe because it doesn't take any personal involvement with me. But you get into the simple things of the Bible, like loving God, loving your spouse, doing what's right, keeping the right attitude. See, those things involve you. Now, this is why, very frankly, and you'll see this, this is why so many um, pastors, so many so many people who are really good with the Bible uh, and teach people with the Bible, and I've heard this all my life, you know. Uh, they can disciple like a whiz. They can do discipleship too. They can teach people whatever. They can lay out the Bible. They, they're great preachers. They're whatever. But their families are absolutely a wreck. And the reason for that is simply that the ministry of me ministering to you or you ministering to other people, it doesn't require an intimacy. You don't live with that person that you're discipling. You don't sleep with them. You don't eat with them. You don't, you don't face all the issues of life with them. You see them, you impart to them great truth, and then you go bye-bye. There's no real commitment of you to them. And I, I understand there is a commitment of you to them, but not on the intimacy level of living with somebody on a day-to-day basis. So it's easy for somebody to be able to minister to the world, but not minister to their family. Because that requires you personally getting involved. And there's the problem. Now, I know you laughed the other night when I said it, and it was funny. I'm a funny guy. I get it. I get it. But this is what I meant about texting the other night. See? We live in a world that doesn't want any personal connection. We want to go out and party, find a woman, find a man, have sex, and then go on our way. You know why? We don't want any commitment. We want the joy of it, but we don't want any commitment in it. I think they're called one-night stands. In some cases, two- or three-day stands. I don't know. Kind of like a deer stand, or a, but whatever. But that's the way the world is. <laughs> that's pretty good, deer stand, you know. But in the end, it'll cost you some dough. Or maybe some bucks. <laughs> I don't think you ought to put that in, John. You can edit that out somehow here. (laughs) But we live in a world that doesn't want that person. And unfortunately, we actually see that in the ministry too many times. And that's why a pastor wants to get up and preach. And he's a great preacher. But he wants absolutely nothing to do one-on-one with people. 
He'll hire other people to do that. Why? Because he doesn't want that commitment. You can't be an effective pastor and not be with your people. But you can't be a successful spouse without getting that personal attitude connection with your spouse. And that's why you find a lot of people who are great ministry out there, but they're not good in their own marriage because they don't want that personal connection. And it has to be. Well, the second thing. Guard your motive in marriage. Marriage is one of the easiest places to take somebody for granted. Take each other for granted. Because you get used to the same old things. And I don't think in most cases that it's planned. It just happens. And people get to the point where they take each other for granted. And in some cases, that leads to them using the other person, even though they don't have any bad ulterior motive. It's just, it's just part of a lifestyle in a marriage that there is no goals. And the attitude goes by the wayside. Your motive in ministry is to make others better. That's my motive in ministry. It's the only motive I have. My motive is to take every one of you and everybody in our church, everybody that says... I want to part old paths. And my goal is simply one thing, that is to make you better. Now, some of you don't like that because you don't want to be better. And you take it like I'm being hard on you or I'm being unfair to you or I'm sticking my nose in your business and I do my best to keep my nose out of your business. But the bottom line is, my bottom line goal in everything I do is not to hurt you, but to make you better. And you know as well as I do that sometimes growing up, for your parents to make you what you are today, you had to get a spanking every once in a while. But God's people don't like being spanked. But sometimes you need spanked. Sometimes you need thrown down the cellar steps. (laughs) But putting that aside, my goal and my job and my motive, whatever I do, is to make you better. Because that's what ministry is. And your motive in marriage as a spouse is to make each other better. That's your motive. That's the only motive you have. You make each other better. Marriage, much like the ministry, only to each other, is giving of yourself to each other first. No self-involved. And when both have the right motive in the giving to each other, the marriage stays strong. It'll stay strong in the three aspects that we've already talked about. It'll stay strong physically. It'll stay strong emotionally. And it'll stay strong spiritually. Doing things with the wrong motive, whether it's your marriage or life in general, and we see it all the time, will always cause issues. For it will break down the first goal, which is attitude. And when attitude goes, the rest of them fold up like a house of cards because attitude is everything. Now the third one is guard your focus in marriage. Focus is seeing things clearly. I remember, and of course we're way past this in technology now, but but I remember when uh, 35 millimeter cameras came out with InstaFocus. And uh, the button that you pushed down to take the picture, it was set up that if you pushed it halfway down, you didn't have to focus the camera. It would automatically zip and focus itself. It was incredible. 
And uh, and I've often thought when that came out, you know, you just push a button and everything comes into focus. You know, that's what Bible principles do. And this is why I try to put them in you and hit you with them all the time. And I know you don't like it sometimes, but I do. Because biblical principles will do for you what that camera did for you when you push the button. It puts things into instant focus. You see things in an instant how they really are, not how they appear. Things are not blurry anymore. And you would be absolutely surprised of how many of God's people go through life seeing things blurry. And that's what gets them problems. And uh, many times in life, it's, it's the good things in life that will get us off focus. Not just the bad things. We always think that the bad things that get us out of focus. A lot of times it's just good things. When you don't have goals supporting everything that you're trying to do, it's not just the bad things, it's the good things. And in a marriage, many things will will get us to lose our focus. Good things. Focus will be the ability to see something clearly so you don't either overreact to it or underreact to it. Focus will be priorities. In any marriage, there, you know, you're going to have to have a list of priorities that both parties understand and agree to. And keeping a maintenance of your priorities will keep your marriage running strong. Now, Paul covers this, and I, I end up not planning to go through all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've done it before, but you do know that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 of the New Testament is the handbook for the New Testament Christian on marriage. Every aspect is covered. There isn't a pastor in this city, maybe other than one or two, that understands that. That's why they're always going to the Old Testament, and Matthew, or back to the Old Testament to try to deal with divorce, remarriage, and all the issues. They haven't got a clue about the Bible. The key chapter in the New Testament for the Christian on marriage, divorce, and remarriage is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And when Paul talks about somebody getting married, you know what he says in 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine. He says this, he says, those of you who get married, and I'm going to paraphrase here, those of you who get married should be as though you're not married. And I've had a thousand people look at that and say, oh, what does that mean? It simply means that there's a purpose and goal in marriage behind why God gave marriage in the first place. And what many, many couples do is they get too married. Say, so how can you get too married? Easy. You get so into each other, you forget the real purpose of marriage and therefore never accomplish what God gave you marriage for. And he says, you're married, but in one aspect, it's like you're not married. Because when he told you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when you weren't married, you could do everything God wanted you to do. So what he's saying is this. He's saying now that you're married, you're not single anymore. You can't just do whatever you want to do. But you ought to look at your marriage, husband and wife together, like you're both not married, not in a bad sense, but in the sense that you don't get so committed to everything in life that you forget the real purpose that God gave you marriage in the first place. And I've seen that happen. I've seen people get married and they say, well, we're going to take a couple years off, you know, from doing anything for God just to get to get to, get to know each other. Well, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. You should have done that in the engagement. What did you think that was for? 
I mean, you actually got married, and now you're going to find out if this is really, really want to marry? Is that what you're going to do? Well, yeah, you better take more than two years if that's what you got to do. That's why you have a. That's why you have a an engagement, and then I would suggest a fairly lengthy engagement, because that's when you work out the issues. That's when you find out, <clears throat> and when you get married, then at that point you realize what all marriage is, understand what you are now. You have your goals already set. You just move on. But most people, (coughs) they get too married. They get so much into each other that they never have any time for the Lord. The Lord gets put on a back burner. And I'm going to tell you something. I know it's easy on your stove to take the, the, the pot from the front burner to the back burner, and then from the back burner to the front burner. It's a lot harder when you put God on the back burner to get him back to the front burner. I've never understood this. And this is true of women. No disrespect, ladies. I, I, I get you. But that little red light on your car that comes on, it says warning light means you've got a problem. I've had women that, that, that burned their engines up simply because of the fact that the oil light came on. They thought it would just wanted you to know that there's oil, that you've struck oil. No, it means that your engine is not getting the oil, the pressure's too low, and your engine will not run on oil. And then when it all blows up and the rod goes up through the hood, they look at it and said, thank you. Hmm. That red light on your dashboard tells you that something is amiss, and you need to stop and find out what it is before you go too much farther. And it's always amazed me that people either won't see the warning light or they just ignore the warning light. You know why? And I'm guilty of this too. When my engine light comes on, I I don't know why I do this, but when my engine light comes on, I feel like I got another 100,000 miles before I got to work with it. My first feeling is, you know what my first thing is? This is absolutely true. My first inclination is, that's just put there by the manufacturer to get me to come in so I can spend some more money. And when it comes on in your life and your marriage, your first inclination is, oh, that's just put there by the manufacturer. God. It's really not important. Or you ignore it altogether. And of course, when people ignore the red light on their dashboard, they wind up doing something terrible to their car. And when husbands and wives and spouses ignore the red, white, red warning signal when it comes on, the spiritual dashboard of your marriage, and you ignore it or you don't see it, you're going to have some problems. So you want to guard your focus. Now the fourth one. You want to guard the team concept in your marriage. Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we're laborers together. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, uh, says that in marriage... It says this, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and the, the two shall be one flesh. A marriage in God's sight is two people, you and your spouse, becoming one. But it's simple math. It takes two to make a marriage. If the two become one, how are they a team? Because it takes at least two to be a team. And of course, when the two become one, the second person of the marriage and the team is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that forms the perfect team concept. 
you two as one plus the Lord equals two in the marriage and a team concept in the marriage. The fifth one. Guard what you say in your marriage. I'm letting that one kind of filter down to the inner bowels of your world. Guard what you say in your marriage. In, in ministry and in my own family, I am very careful in what I say to people. And yet I still fail many, many times in both cases. But I also understand that words can make you or break you. They will either build you up or they will destroy you. There have been times that I was working with um, somebody and either their parents or somebody in their family hated my guts and openly in front of that person just clobbered me and it was such a, it would have been such an easy thing to string them up upside down, cut out their bowels and watch their intestines run down over their nose. <laughs> but I'll leave that out too, John. <clears throat> uh, I know, I'm going to tell you something, and you never probably see it, but there is a side to me you do not want to mess with. I'm very good in, with you guys because I love you all, and I, you know, I put I put up with you. You know why I put up with you? Because you put up with me. It's a two-way street. But there's a side of me that a person doesn't want to mess with. I've been in this business 45 years. I've learned every trick into the trade and every trap play up the middle, and I learned everything that everybody says. And most of the people who attack anybody with any longevity in the ministry was going up against somebody that doesn't have the experience that he has, and he is going to gut you. And there's been cases like that when somebody has said something, I could have spread them out all over the sidewalk. But I don't. You know why? Because I'll take it from that person because I don't want to do anything, even though maybe by rights I could and I would feel great about it. And he probably needed it. But it might affect the person I'm working with. Because it's still their relative, still their mom, still their dad, still their brother or whoever. And even though I may be right and justified in defending myself and keeping the record straight, I won't do it because I simply know that words will either break you or make you. And I may break this, I may, I may make my day with this person, but I may break it with this person. And this is the one I'm concerned about. And so words are very important in developing people. And I don't know why people can't see this. In developing people, the success is very simple. You see the good that they do. Now, if you just go around looking at, at, at all the bad somebody does, I mean, you're going to find all you want. And if that's, where if that's where your vacuum cleaner nose is, then that's what you're going to pick up. I refuse to do that. Now, I know there's some bad people out there. I get it. I understand it. I realize there's some people you don't want to mess with. But that's not the majority of the people that I have to deal with. 
In developing people, you look at the good they do in spite of the issues that they have, and then you try to develop the good to override the bad. I look at people in percentages. I really do. I don't know how many times I've said to myself or I've said to somebody else, you know what? Somebody will say, why do you like that person? And I'll say, you know why I like them? Because 85% of them is good. 15% is stupid. So I'm going to work on the 85. It would be something else if 85 was bad and 15% was stupid or, or good. But when I got somebody who's 85, 85% good and 15% is stupid, it would be hard to find anybody in this room that doesn't have at least 10% of stupidity in us. Amen. And the why you, you know why you got where you got? Now you're here today? It's because somebody focused on the good and just didn't keep beating you up and calling you an idiot because of the 15%. Amen. That's success in building people. And in marriages... It's what you say that will make or break it. And this is where I teach you the old concept of uh, react versus respond. When you react to something, you're going to say something stupid back. Hey, and there isn't any husband on this planet that won't provoke his wife. There isn't any wife on this husband uh, in this world that won't provoke her husband. It just is life. When you put two people together in the same house have to deal with the problem. I don't care if she's the Madonna with the child. I don't care if he's Moses with the rod and the Ten Commandments. They're going to have some problems. And I use my old phrase, being smarter than the problem. And I've failed in this so many times. I, you know what? I, I can use myself as an example without ever pointing a finger at anybody else. You know what? Somebody says something to you, and you know, you actually know what you should say, and you don't. You react. And you react because you want to. It makes you, for a moment, feel better. Frying pan in the head when you turn your back changes the whole perspective of things. But for a fleeting moment of time, you think you gain something. And then, Holy Spirit of God sets in and you realize you lost something. It's always better just, just to, when you get the principles in to, to just respond to things. Josh sent me a thing last night that talked about the, what was it, Josh, the seven, uh, it was a ten, wasn't it? I couldn't read them all because my flip phone, I don't, I don't have an iPad. I have a flip phone. Uh, a flip phone doesn't blow it up. But what was it? It was the ten... Ten reasons why a man prefers a gun over a woman. Ten reasons why a man prefers a gun over a woman. And there was a bunch of good ones in there, but the last one was that you can put a silencer on a gun and you cannot put one on a woman. <laughs> That's Josh over there. See him on the way out. <laughs> He's selling copies of that today. <clears throat> I, I, it was great. I only got the last part. I had, and I had to put these, because I can't, you know, you guys on yours, you can blow it up. I can't, so I put these big goggles on it, you know, it looks like, it looks like I'm doing botany class and I'm reading that thing, you know. Hey, in a marriage, the husband, the most fragile part of a woman is her spirit. And what you say, and I'm going to talk to the husbands a minute. Because, uh, you know, a a man is supposed to be the tough guy in it. And I don't mean tough, the fact that you're indifferent, but you're just, you handle things. You're the leader. 
when in a pastor of a church, there's lots of things that I have to deal with on my shoulders that when you fall apart and break up and you're whining in the corner over here and you're dealing with it, and I get it. I have to shoulder it and have to go on with it. That's what a husband has to do. He has to be the man. He has to play the man. So it's his spirit. I'm not saying you're not conducive to his spirit. I am. But he's got to have a strong... We already know the woman's a weaker vessel. And that weaker vessel is in her spirit. You crush that. You disregard that. And in time, you're really going to have some issues. In some places, he gets to the point where it's unfixable. Repairing a broken spirit is probably the hardest thing you'll ever have to do when it really gets damaged. It really is. And I know most of you don't understand that because you haven't been in that level where you've had to deal with it. Boy, I've dealt with marriages where after 10, 30, 20 years, um, the spirit of the woman is really busted. I've seen husbands cuss out their wives, call them the most filthy names you could ever imagine, everything in the book, some of the most terrible despicable, degrading thing you could ever say much more than you could ever do. And those words will do more damage than you could ever imagine because it will kill her spirit. You know what the most terrible things about words are? You can't take them back. If you could retract them, It would be one thing. <coughs> but you just go off. And I, hey, I've seen women do it to the husbands too. But I've seen a husband do it to women. And you know what? I've seen husbands do it to a woman where I couldn't believe some of the things that they were saying to them. And they just lose it completely. And uh, it's because they react versus respond. And it goes back to the fact that there's nothing really biblical inside. I, most of them go to church all the time and, you know, and have the right Bible and have everything. It, it isn't about the, you know, it isn't about you having the Bible. It's about the Bible having you. Somebody said one time, you can dig a bullet out of the heart of a man that you hit when you shot him. But the words that you hit your heart, they're there forever. I'm not saying that the grace of God and the word of God can't cover all that. Sure it can. But sometimes it won't. Not because it can't, but because there's so much damage done that it can't happen. So you have to guard what you say in your marriage. And when you say something stupid, my advice to you is, and you'll know at least five to ten seconds after you say it, it won't be like the next week it hits you. You'll know the Holy Spirit of God will tell you immediately. And then it becomes a point of your pride, whether you will just stop what you're doing and go back and you say, you know what? <coughs> I shouldn't have said that. I'm glad I did, but I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, I shouldn't have said that. That was not right. That not is conducive of me being the spiritual leader. And I apologize and ask you to forgive me. And I'm sorry, because that is not the way that I should act. And that's, that's just where it's at. Well, the sixth thing. You want to guard your purpose in your marriage. We talked about this in an earlier lesson. The fulfillment of God's plan 
in a husband and wife relationship. Simply, you get married, later on you have a family, and that family we now know is the key to God's plan to reaching the world. And this is where the failure has come in. This is where the failure is at today in Christian marriages, right here. The fact that a person gets married, they really don't understand it when they get married. For whatever reason, even though they can be in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church where you get everything you need, they refuse to do it. They won't maintenance it. They pay no attention to the warning lights. They say whatever they want to say to each other. (coughs) The spirit gets killed. And then the whole thing breaks down and God's plan of ministry never gets accomplished. Many years ago, uh, it was on a New Year's Eve service when I was at a a large church. There must have been 2,500 people that night. And... uh, they uh, they wanted to make an illustration at the end of the church service about the shedding of the gospel and winning people to Christ. And I thought it was a pretty effective thing. And when they came in to the church service, everybody got a candle. So you got 2,500 candles unlit. And then uh, at one point when they were going to make the uh, uh, presentation, four people within 2,500 got they're candle lighted. So you got four people in 2,500. One over here, one over here, one up here, one in the back. So four people out of 2,500 had four candles that were, that were lit. Everybody else's candle was not. And then the pastor said, when he made, wanted to make his point, talk about sharing the gospel, light of the world, he simply told those four people to light the candle on each side of them, and then the people on each side of them to light the candle on each side of them, And at that command, in the next 40 seconds, 2,500 candles were now lit and illuminated that dark auditorium. And his, his purpose and his point was being, your family should be the light that lights other families. This world is in darkness. The only way the light is going to get turned on is through families. The reason why it's not being turned on today in the Laodicean church is because of families. Families are broken. <clears throat> families don't have, <clears throat> their kids aren't coming to church. They've lost this. They've lost that. They don't, are witnesses themselves. But the way God intended to reach the world was through families. And when one family just takes the time to light the families around them, and then those families light other families. And those families light other families. In time, the whole world gets the light of Jesus Christ. That was the great secret of the Philadelphian church age. Just one man, one family, with the light, lighting another family. And they went all over the world to do it. And it turned the lights on. And three quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The reaching of the world will start with you as a couple getting married and understanding God's purpose, God's marriage. And then as you have a family, you train them. And now you're not only a church, now you're 
you're a mission church and you spend the rest of your life lighting families with your family. Well, that's the end of, of number six.